really enjoyed the new song we learned today. That speaks to my heart. Ah, wow. Tonight, I really want to encourage you to come out. VBS is one of the most wonderful opportunities for laying the foundation of the gospel in the lives of children, many of them unchurched. And uh, we love this opportunity. It's one of uh, our greatest joys as a church. So coming out tonight to be a part of prayer for this will be very important. So I'm asking that you would definitely join us, even if you're not part of a small group at this time, that you join us here at 5. We'll have some time of prayer here and some instruction. We've actually got a little brochure to prayer walk the campus with, and so we'll be handing those out, and you'll be able to kind of unfold that and walk through and pray for a lot of specific needs in preparing us. I love VBS. I I get to do the missions section every year, and it's been such a joy to see the zeal of the children for missions, so I'm looking forward to it and uh, kind of giddy about it at this point. It's, uh, It's good. Let's jump into John 21. Join me there. A lot of you have been asking me some questions about my health, and so um, I haven't tried to hide anything from you. I told you a little while back I was having a a biopsy, and so a lot of questions about the results. I I didn't get any results yet and won't until 3 o'clock on Tuesday. And so once that uh, hits, we'll be making that public and uh, let folks know. So thank you for your prayer, your concern, your texts, your calls. Wonderful, sweet cards and emails. You are great, and I'm so thankful for you. Last week, I set up this week, and I didn't finish with what I wanted to say last week, sort of intentionally, sort of unintentionally. I'd hoped to introduce where we were coming this week, and, uh, and we didn't. So I'm going to set everything back up, remind you as we walk through John 21 and Peter's restoration to ministry, he had fallen from his uh, strong testimony into a testimony of denial. And so last week, uh, we'll walk right back through your outline. It's just like it was last week. Number one, there was a context for understanding Peter's motivation. That context was characterized by, by a couple of things, really about four major things. First, it was a context of failure. Peter miserably failed. I don't know where you are in your Christian walk, but if you've got any amount of time in that, it's very likely that you've got a catastrophic, cataclysmic, serious failure somewhere along the way that you have some shame about and you regret greatly. Peter was in the midst of this failure. And it was an ugly failure, a failure in which he not only turned but denied Jesus, and not only denied but denied him three times, not only denied three times but literally called down a curse from heaven upon himself in his denial, trying to assure the people that he was denying to, that he was telling them the truth. So he was calling on heaven to confirm his lie. It was a very serious kind of denial of Christ. And so that was part of the context. Another part of the context was the resurrection. Uh, this was the third time that Jesus had made himself known. He had shown his love. So what he's about to ask of Peter, love, is asked in a context that Jesus has first loved Peter. 
The Bible says we love because he first loved us. So the context of the asking of love is the giving of love through his life, through his incarnation, through the cross, the death. All of those things were Jesus's love to us and for us. God loving us in Christ, as we read earlier in John 3.16 with the children. And so the context is not just Peter's failure, but, but Jesus' incredible love for Peter. There's also the context mentioned. Come with me in chapter 21 to the very first interaction in verse 15 of, of John 21, where they finished breakfast and Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Notice what he says, more than these. What Jesus is pointing out is is something that's really obvious to us, but we don't talk about it. There are a lot of things that will compete for the love of Jesus in our lives. There are idolatrous things that we have that literally compete with our love for Jesus. And so the context of whatever these is, we talked last week, we don't know what these is. Doesn't say, but it's something that competes with Peter's love for Jesus. So it's a comparative. Peter, do you love me more than these? And so that is a question that kind of hangs over us at all times when Jesus is interacting with us. Do you love me more than all of these things that compete for the affections of God? And there are a load of them, and they're constantly coming at us. And so. The context is failure. The context is love. The context is competition. Some things in Peter's heart are competing for his allegiance to Jesus, for his love for Jesus, for his affections for God. It's something powerful. It's something insidious. It's something sneaky. But it's something. And everybody has it. So, The next part of the context is that Jesus is seeking him. There's something about the true children of God that marks them. And that is that Jesus never stops pursuing. Never. The Bible says in Jesus' words, I know my sheep. They hear my voice and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. That's Jesus in John 10 talking about what he's doing with Peter right now. You see, Peter denied. And so now Jesus knows that Peter is one of his true sheep. He's seeking him out. He's after him. He's pursuing him. So whatever manner of failure you may ever find yourself in, if you are the sheep of Jesus, he as a good shepherd, is going to be looking for you. And so this context of failure, of love, of competition, and of Jesus seeking sets us up for the second part we covered last week. There was something that could cause Peter to be motivated in enduring obedience. In other words, what's going to be different now that's going to be settled in Peter's heart that wasn't settled at the denial? What's going to be settled now that wasn't settled and and didn't hold him in the kind of obedience he ought have had? What was the muddle? What was the confusion? What was it? It was this one thing that God's love 
poured out on us, shed for us, given for us at the cross, is the power by the Holy Spirit and true conversion to hold us in true obedience as we respond in love to Him. That's what's being worked out here. Peter had not seen the fullness yet of God's love. He had not understood the vastness of His love. He knew of His love in a particular way of experiencing Jesus and His teaching, of thinking of Him as the Christ, the Son of the living God. But now he has realized that this Christ, whom he denied, actually gave His life and trade for Him. The words of John the Baptist are ringing now in Peter's ear. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so Peter is getting it. He's understanding. He's comprehending the level of love that Jesus has for him, which is going to compel something in him that will make him durable for the rest of his life to walk in obedience and follow Jesus without denial. And so that's brewing. And so there's something that would cause Peter to be different than he was at the fire, outside of where Jesus was being interrogated. Something that would be different than his fear of losing his life. Something that would be different than his fear of his reputation being tarnished by being tied to this now criminal Something that would be different than being so scared of being harmed that you would actually lie and say, I don't know anything about Jesus. Something different. And that different thing is love. That's why Jesus raises that issue. Three times he says, Simon, do you love me? In other words, Jesus is cutting down to the very basics, and that is what is going to be able to make you regular just normal Christian guy or gal. What is going to keep you from now until He comes to get you? What is going to sustain you? And what Jesus was helping Peter understand, it is loving Jesus. The biblical Jesus, not the figment of your imagination Jesus. The Jesus revealed in the Bible. Loving Him, truly So we went on to number three, that there was a command that this was tied to. When Peter responded, yes, Lord, I love you. You know. Then Jesus said, then you need to obey me. You need to steward what belongs to you. For Peter, it was to shepherd the flock. I don't know what your stewardship is. But every one of us in our gifts, in our salvation, have a stewardship that God is commanding us to take care of. In the words of Jesus to Peter, tend or shepherd your stewardship. And so there's a command that comes with that love. If I love him, I'm going to, in love, obey him. Okay, so that set up what I want to tell you today. So let's go to that, Lynn. Thank you. You're always great. I tell you, our media folks and folks behind the scene, I'm always so thankful for them. They follow me and my ADHD all over the place, and I'm just thankful. Okay, there were consequences for Peter's enduring obedience. Part of what's brewing here is what happened the first time. When Peter came up to this ledge, to this place, where now his faith was going to cost him. Remember, Peter's made some pretty good oaths. 
Back when Jesus tells Peter, you're going to deny me, Peter says, everybody else might, but not me. And so he just gets real boastful. And uh, Jesus says, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. And once you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. In other words, Jesus is saying, you, you couldn't blow it, Peter. This pride of yours, this thinking that you can do this by your own strength, this is not going to work. It's not willpower that's going to make you follow Jesus to the end. It's love. That's it. And so this has been set up. And so Peter is being confronted with a reality that he had faced earlier and failed. What was that reality? Well, he knew standing there that night when Jesus was on trial, that if somebody said, hey, you're one of those disciples, and he said, oh, yeah, I'm like a Jesus freak, that he's going to like be uh, persecuted in some form, afflicted in some form, maybe crucified with him, maybe imprisoned, maybe flogged, don't know. Maybe John the Baptist style beheaded, don't know what's going to happen. But Peter knows that if he says, yes, I'm a follower of this guy, then he is going to be harmed. And so Peter learns something at this point that Jesus said a long time back. If you want to try to save your life in this world, you're just going to lose it. Because there is nothing you can do to stop the fact that you're going to die. Just look around real quick. hundred years. Every one of us. If Jesus hadn't come back, except Miss Wanda, she may outlive that. All right? hundred years, every one of us are going to be at a cemetery somewhere. And there is nothing that you can do to stop that fact. See, there's a warning just going off right now. All right, it's like a digital amen, all right? <laughs> the ADHD, man, my mind's all over the place. Um, so what's happening is that Jesus is not going to comfort Peter right now and say, because you love me and because you follow me, everything's cool, man. It's just going to go really good. This is why I hate the prosperity gospel and that whole movement. Because there's this idea that the, the, the blessing of God is health and wealth and prosperity when the Bible says the blessing of God is the capacity to endure a world that hates Christians and may make you not rich but broke. Not healthy but dead. So, there's consequences. So, Jesus lays them out. So, let's pick them up. Let's break them down. And then I have an illustration that I think will help you. We'll pick, pick them up in verse 18. Uh, Lynn, roll the neck just one slide. Two consequences Jesus talks about. Verse 18 of John 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and go wherever you wished. Okay. What he's saying is, there was a time in your life where... What you did was not costly. You were free. You just kind of, what you did was not costly. You get up, you go fishing. What do you do for a living? I fish. You like it? Oh, man, do I like it. That's our life. My dad did it. My family's involved in it. My best friends are involved in it. It is a fishing life. And so it's in his, it's down in his heart. And so he'd get up and he'd dress himself and if he, Wanted to go to the store, he went to the store. If he wanted to go to the town, he went to town. He did what he wanted to do. In other words, his life was under his own command. 
and he could do as he wished. But then he says, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. After Peter's confession of love, Jesus says, this is going to cost you. That thing that you tried to save yourself from when you were at the campfire warming your hands and the servant said, you're one of Jesus' people. And you said, oh, no, I'm not. Oh, yeah, you have a Galilean accent. Oh, no, I don't, y'all. And then, it's like you're from the south and people can't tell. They could pick up by his accent. And the third time he calls down a curse and says, not only do I not know him, but curses upon me if I'm not telling you the truth. And so what happens here is that Peter wants to save himself for something. And Jesus turns and says, you know that thing you wanted to save yourself from? It's still coming. You can't get out of the fact that if you love me, it is going to cost you. It is going to be your demise at the same time that it is your salvation. And so time's coming when they'll gird you and they'll stretch out your hands. But John's real clear in verse 19 to say, now this he said signifying what kind of death. John was saying this is what became of Peter. Peter was going to die for his faith. The very thing he didn't want to do on the night of the crucifixion, he's going to do, but he's going to do it now because he loves Jesus and because the world hates the believers and they're going to assault them and try to tear them down. And so the two consequences, the first one, Lynn, is suffering. You love Jesus, you're going to suffer. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There is some cost attached to loving the Creator that the world has rejected. Loving the Savior that the world has turned from. There is always a cost. And so he says to Peter, Peter, it's costly. You lose your freedom on this. Now, I want to... No, I'm not going to say that yet. I hope I'll remember to say it in a minute. Number two, glory. Look at the phrase there in verse 19. Now, this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. Now, this is very important because... Jesus is holding two things out to Peter, not just one. He's not just holding death out to him. He's holding glory out to him. And this glory is such a glory that it is a compelling glory. There's something about it that makes it worth suffering for. And so he's kind of covering that with him. So he holds these two things out. He says there's, there's suffering and there's glory. Now, I need to work this out in a way that maybe we can understand because I think if we just left it here for a minute, we kind of go and scratch our heads, as, as I have many times over the Scriptures, and said, how's that look? Well, Paul fixes up how it looks in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. So let's go there where Steve read. Now, I had Steve cover a pretty good chunk. We're only going to look at a little slice of that chunk. And here's the illustration. So, Lynn, next screen. There we go. All right. Your life is a factory. I want you to think about that. Can you say with me, my life is a factory? Say it. My life is a factory. <laughs> okay. So it is. Your life is a factory. Now, something's going on in that factory. Something's happening in that factory. Your existence, your passing through this earth, your time on earth, your life is a factory. Something is being produced in that factory. 
Now, all factories need supplies and raw materials. So that, Lynn, goes on that end. Stuff comes on into the factory. You go to the Mercedes-Benz plant over there in Alabama when you're passing through and you can see that plant. There's a Nissan plant that's almost exactly one mile long on the interstate north of Jackson, Mississippi. And if you actually will watch your odometer, when you hit the Nissan property and see the building, you'll see that when you get to the end of the building, you've gone nine-tenths of a mile and the building's still going. All right? So it's almost a mile long. You can see it on Google Earth. It's so big. All right? So uh, something goes in one end and something comes out the other end. You go to the Mercedes factory, you got metal and you got parts and you got rubber and you got all this stuff going in one end. What comes out the other end? A car. That's it. A car comes out. So it's producing something. So at the other end, something comes out. All right? Now, your life is a factory, and Paul used an illustration of that so good in 2 Corinthians 4 that I wanted to walk through that with you. So, first off, I'm talking to believers. Okay? Everything I'm going to say from this point forward, I'm speaking to believers. Now, if you're not a believer and you're here just kind of checking things out, I'm telling you this is what to expect. You're, you're going to think at the end of it, well, if you're trying to sell me on this, I don't want it. <laughs> because I'm going to talk about the suffering of Christian life and what the Bible actually says about it. So at this one end of the factory, Paul says there's three kind of things that kind of go into it. Lynn, first one, there are momentary things that are going into it. In other words, all of the stuff that happens to you in this life has to fall in the category of momentary. You're going to live somewhere between conception and 116, I think, is the oldest. And I think the last person known to have been born in the 1800s just died. It was in the paper the other day or actually on the Internet. The last person, they were 116 years old. (laughs) That's a long time. That, That really is. I wonder what you think about when you're 110. You know, what, what do I have to look forward to? There's a lot of things go through your mind about how long you've been there. And if you saw the 1800s, of course, they barely saw it. And what all went on in the 1900s, like, wow, what a change in, in their lives. So it's momentary. Even if it's 116 years, 116 years is in eternal pictures. It's momentary. Second thing, something's going to go on. It's light. When I say light, you say, Bart, the stuff I've been through, I think, you're, I think you're deceiving if you call it light. I think you are hurting my feelings if you say the stuff that happened to me as a child was light. If you say the stuff that happened to me as an adult was light. If you say the stuff that happened to me last week or last month or with my health is light. Thank you, I didn't say it. It's what Paul says. Now the reason Paul says it is he's always speaking comparatively. Momentary is only momentary when it's compared with eternity. In other words, a hundred years of hardship is only momentary if it's compared with we've been there 10,000 years. We've no less days to sing His praise than... When we'd first begun. Okay, so it's only momentary comparatively. So Paul drops the word light. Look look with me. He says it. 
In verse 17, for momentary light, third word, Lynn, affliction. Affliction means hurt, pain, hardship, persecution, suffering, and death. All tied up in that. All of the things that are the result of the fall. Every kind of harm that befalls humanity as a result of sin could be put under the category of affliction. So, in one end of the factory of your life are you and your momentary, you and your light, you and your affliction... All are going into this period of time that you are existing on the earth. So here's the raw materials of the factory. They're not good. They're painful. Now, along with these are certain joys and other things, but Paul is right now focusing on the hardships. So you got this factory that's your life. As a believer, trusting Christ. And into that life come these things that are momentary, light, but they are affliction. They hurt. They pull tears from your eyes and aches from your heart and anxiety from your mind. They hurt. They hurt down at the core of your being in anguish where you weep and you sorrow and you cry out and you seek help and sometimes it's not there and the heavens are like brass and the loneliness and the isolation and all of those things that are a part of the fall and you feel like you're just not going to make it. So Paul is not diminishing that your suffering is real. He's only saying that it is light and momentary in comparison. So here's what's happening. Satan wants to manage your factory. Your flesh wants to manage your factory. A world that hates God wants to manage your factory. And so the world, the flesh, and the devil bring this affliction inside the factory of your life with a goal to make what happened with Peter happen with you. For you to get scared of the affliction, scared of the pain, scared of the suffering, scared of the fear of death, scared of the fear of the unknown, scared of the fear of not being in control or in charge, so that you... Quit serving Jesus. That's all he's after. He wants the affliction to shut down the factory so that you simply sit back and wallow in your pain and you do like Peter and say, No, this is too costly. No, this is too much. Now, Paul doesn't leave it there, but he explains it this way. So, look in verse 17. Follow Paul's logic. For momentary light affliction is producing. There's the factory word. Is producing. This is very important because what Paul is doing, he's saying there is a side of your life that is now, and it is temporal, and it is on this earth. But there is also a side of your life that is later, that is eternal, that is not of this earth. It is of the new earth, 
the new heaven. So that's why he kicks it to the other side. And Lynn, help me out. The first thing is he wants to break down your obedience. That's what Satan's after. Break it down. God wants to produce your obedience. But God reveals to us that obedience is only possible through three things. Faith. I trust him. Two. I hope in him. That means I don't receive what I'm supposed to get yet. I'm looking forward to it. And love. I'm doing this. Now, you say, Bart, (laughs) for real, you're telling me to step into this factory of affliction? You want me to run into this factory of affliction? What would compel me to run into something knowing that it will hurt? What would compel me? Well, I was reading the paper the other day. And it was a story of a dad whose house was on fire when he got there and his kids were inside. So what did dad do? Did he sit around and calculate the medical bills that it might cost him if he got any burns? Did he sit around and think about the temperature inside the house? Did he do that? No. The dad ran straight into the burning house. Why? What would do that? Love. What would do that? The hope that he could save those children. So love and hope compelled him and then belief that it was possible. And so faith, hope, and love caused that dad to run into a burning house and snatch his children and bring them out without regard to to personal cost. And he was injured. Third degree burns. But he saved his kids. What would compel him? That's why Peter had the talk with Jesus. Jesus had the talk with Peter. Peter, what's going to compel you to run into this burning world of people perishing and save them from eternal damnation? And so if you walk into this factory of momentary light afflictions, the only thing that will bring you in is faith, hope, and love. The only thing that that will produce is obedience. But look at what's on the other side. First one. First off, our rewards are eternal. What God is working in your factory today is not temporal stuff. That's why I hate the prosperity gospel and its focus on temporal blessings. I see this big escalade with his words on the front. Too blessed to be stressed. I want to kick it. I'm just telling you, if it was yours, the boot print was me. No, I didn't. All right. Our, the stuff we're after is not from this world. Stop chasing this stuff. You can't keep it. None of it. Second, it's heavy. Stuff that God is leveraging in your life through Satan and the world and the flesh's abuse of you, God is leveraging eternally. Heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. Stuff that when Paul peeked over the rim of heaven and saw, God whispered in his ear, you can't tell anybody. That's how heavy it is. You don't even get to brag about it. 
heavy, weighty stuff that we can't even comprehend far beyond all comprehension. And then, glory. That's the tie to Jesus' words. You see, the glory of God is the greatest experience that any human can ever have. To behold His face unveiled for all of eternity is the most glorious, weighty, eternal thing that any human can ever have. There is nothing greater. In fact, Jesus said, This is eternal life to know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom I have sent. And I have done all this so that they may be with me and behold my glory. That's what Jesus is after. So here's what's happening right now in your life. Satan is coming into your factory as a manager. The flesh is warring to be the the, the chief at your factory. The world is coming in trying to manipulate your factory. But God owns the factory. And everything that happens inside the factory of the Christian life is leveraged by God for an eternal weight of glory. So it does not matter what the enemy does to you. God is leveraging it for your good. For eternal weighted glory. I don't know what you're going through today. But if you are a believer and you are in the house of pain, I want you to know that God owns the house. Even though it feels like the house manager today is the devil, God owns the house. And He is going to determine the final product. And He is working in you for your joy and your good and your eternity. And He's doing it right now. No matter what you're in. So the way that Paul deals with this is really practically. So let's finish it with something we can take home. Okay, we got the concept, but Pastor Bart, I'm in it. What do I do? Okay, here's what Paul says to do. How do I navigate this? It's three parts. Paul gives it right here in verse 18 of chapter 4. First, assess the alternatives. This is real simple. Do I want something temporal or do I want something eternal? Just, that's it. That's the alternatives we're talking about. Temporal stuff, eternal stuff. Paul just makes it real plain. Temporal stuff, man, you can just lather on and you can have it, but you can't keep it. You can accrue and you can have, you can buy, you can just you can obtain, but you can't keep it. Oh, it's fun. It's fun. But it's temporal. And so essentially what Paul says is. Assess the alternatives. I got one alternative is temporal. I got another alternative is eternal. That's it. Everything can be put in those categories. Second thing I do, use the comparative. What do I mean? Well, compare. Paul says it. He says, verse 17, I'm verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. Okay? And the things that are not seen are eternal. So I'm going to compare. Some things don't last, and some things do. So I'm going to compare them. Do I want something that doesn't last, or do I want something that does? So I'm going to hold them up against each other. When I'm tempted, I'm going to look at my options. i got something that is temporal. i got something that is eternal. 
That's my options. Let's compare. One of them doesn't last. It might feel good for a season. The Bible says that people leave their faith to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He doesn't say that it's not pleasurable. He says that it's passing. Don't let somebody try to sell you that sin is not fun. It is, or we wouldn't be running for it. But it's passing. So look at your alternatives and then make a comparison. Do I want something that will vaporize? Or do I want something that will last forever? And then finally, choose the superlative. Paul said he knew which one was better. So he chose the eternal. He did. That's what guided him through every temptation, every struggle, every distress. What guided him? This. He was laying up for eternity things that neither moth nor rust could corrupt. Things that thieves could not break in and steal. Things that could not lose their luster with age. And so Paul held up the alternatives. Did the comparative. And chose the superlative. That's what you should do. In every temptation. In every struggle. In every trial. But the only thing that will keep you in the house of pain is love. Don't think that I'm talking about some cool three-step plan to have a better life. I'm talking about only when I love Jesus will I love eternal things more than temporal. Only when I love Jesus will I value and seek eternal things over temporal because that's what His love will compel me to do. Would you bow with me? You're going to go home today and you're going to make decisions. You're making them now. You're thinking about what to eat. You're thinking about how to spend the afternoon. Who's driving home. You're thinking about lots of things. If you're going to get your Bible school room finished being set up. Think about a lot of things. You're going to go out today and you're going to start making decisions. And, and some of them are real... Bland and aren't very tempting at all. And some of them, though, are very tempting. And they're not bland at all. In fact, they're determining of how you're going to go from here. Some of you are without Jesus. And I want to remind you that though you live in the house of pleasure today, that eternity is the house of pain for those without Jesus. See, you, you want to escape pain by escaping Jesus? There is nothing good in that because the temporal pleasures you have will evaporate in the existence apart from God in hell where there is no pain relief. I don't want to sugarcoat this, nor do I want to try to manipulate you, but I want to tell you, if you're buying into the idea that you'll take this pain, this pleasure now to avoid all pain, that's temporal. And eternity is a long time to be wrong about that. So I want to invite you to Jesus. I want you to leave your sin and your selfishness. And I want you to come to Christ. And I want you to know that the joy He gives you today will make you want to go into the house of pain.
It'll compel you like a loving father runs in for the children who are in danger in a house on fire. It's an inexplicable thing. Nobody had to ask the dad, why did you do it? Everybody just knew. And when you live for Jesus, it'll be obvious you love Him. And so I want to invite you first to come to Jesus, just very simply, that you would deny yourself and you would turn and believe that Jesus really is the Son of the living God, God in the flesh. That He really did live perfectly in your place, doing what you should have did, but you never did. And then He died as a substitute in your place, the way you ought to die under the wrath of God. But Jesus bore that wrath because He loves you. And He was raised from the dead as God's vindication, justification of the work of Jesus. His revelation that Jesus was sufficient. And if you would turn from your sin and place your faith in that person, Jesus Christ, and know that He loves you and love Him in return, you will have forgiveness of your sin, peace, and eternal life. And though you will hit many afflictions in this life, all of them will be worth it because in the factory of your house of pain, God is storing up an eternal weight of glory far beyond your comprehension. Believer, are you at that point of decision right now about something God's called you to do and you're trying to avoid pain? Stop. Trust Jesus and do what He says. He's working for His glory and your enjoyment of it. Your good is working for your eternal weight of glory. Would you stand? As God leads you, would you come?